Our scripture today, our text, is from the epistle of 1 Peter, chapter 1, and I'll read verses 13 through 16. 1 Peter, chapter 1, verses 13 through 16. Whenever you see a sentence begin with the uh, word therefore, you know that it's... uh, In fact, somebody said you're supposed to ask yourself, what's it there for? Well, it ties uh, that sentence, that verse, with what has been said prior to it. it. It relates it to its context, and so you'll need to read the context to uh, catch up with us here in verse 13. Therefore, gird up, gird your minds for action. Keep sober in spirit. Fix your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the former lusts which were yours in your ignorance, but like the Holy One who called you, be holy yourselves also in all your behavior, because it is written, You shall be holy, for I am holy. A Christian lives in two worlds, really. That's a theme that runs throughout the Bible, that the Christian lives in two worlds. The Apostle Paul talks about the fact that we have a citizenship in heaven. Now, we may live on earth, but we really belong there, and our citizenship is there. And Hebrews chapter 6 says that we have tasted of the powers of the world to come. We haven't had the full five-course meal, but we have tasted of it. We haven't sat down to the complete banquet, but we have a taste of the powers of the world to come. And that taste of the powers of the world to come has really just intensified our appetite for it. And has caused us to be a little more impatient while we wait for the world that is to come. Have you ever noticed that the hungrier you are, the longer it takes for the meal to be prepared? Have you ever noticed that? And have you ever gone into the, uh, uh, into the kitchen, you know, just to get a taste? Uh, you're so hungry, you think you can't wait until dinner? My mother used to cook these big, luscious chocolate cakes from scratch. Um, now, the only reason I'm mentioning this is, uh, you know, I'm, I'm not putting any slams on my wife. She's a great cook. I won't get any lunch today if I don't uh, kind of... Uh, it just dawned on me when I started talking about mother's cooking that I may, uh, I may, eat, uh, I may eat at Hardy's this afternoon. I'd go into that um, kitchen. I'd go into the kitchen when I was a kid, and she'd have that big chocolate cake getting it ready. And I asked her if I could, quote, lick the bowl. Now, you don't lick the bowl, really. Well, some do. But uh, what, what you do is you get a spoon, you know, and you get the batter. And uh, that doesn't satisfy you. It just intensifies your hunger for the real thing. And so that's what Peter's talking about in another version of this chapter when he says, 
that we wait to receive the end of our salvation and our appetite is intensified because we've tasted of the front end of it. And because we live in two worlds, one foot in heaven and the other foot on earth, he said, therefore gird up the loins of your mind and be sober and wait Put your hope completely on the grace that is, to be, that is to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Because you've been saved and you live in two worlds, live in constant anticipation of that hope which is to be, that grace which is to be brought to you in the revelation of Jesus. And that's really the main idea of this text. If I were going to outline this text, I'd draw one long line, or diagram this text, I'd draw one long line. On that line, I'd put these words. Fix your hope completely on the grace that is being brought to you in the revelation of Jesus Christ. And then I'd draw little lines from that, like be vigilant, or gird up the loins of your mind, or be sober, or uh, be holy as I am holy. You get, you get the point? In other words, he's saying that we are to live in the anticipation of the grace that's coming at the revelation of Jesus when He returns to earth. And there's an interesting Greek construction there, and it means literally that we are to live in anticipation of this grace that's bearing down upon us from glory itself. Now some of you might be saying, well, you're talking about living for the future. I thought we were supposed to live in the present. I know these folks, some would say, who are so heavenly minded, they, they are no earthly good. I've heard that myself, but I don't know anybody like that. I don't know anybody that's so heavenly minded, he's no earthly good. I've never met that guy. I know some people who are so earthly minded, they are no heavenly good. I want to confess to you, our problem is not that we have our mind too much on heaven. Our problem is that our mind is too much on the world. I've never met the guy who is so heavenly minded. He has, he has no earthly good. And besides, a person cannot really live correctly in the present unless he has a proper anticipation of the future. Some of us have had the opportunity of watching this week the Olympics. Did you see the darling... Of, uh, of the Olympic Games, stand there on that victory stand and get her gold medal in gymnastics. Um, once Todd gets back, I'm going to get him to fall in love with her. She's worth a million dollars, huh, to anybody. And I read a little bit about her in the Dallas Morning News this morning, said that two years, when, two years ago, they, her parents sent her away 2,000 miles to train for the Olympics. It's been all she's ever hoped and dreamed about. She was dreaming and hoping for the night when she'd stand on that victory stand with that gold around her neck listening to the, to the national anthem of the United States of America. She lived with her mind on that day. Well, did it make any difference? Did that anticipation change the way she lived in the present? Of course it did. It meant that she was to discipline her life and to live a life of commitment and separation and challenge and inspiration. And because she anticipated that glory where she would stand on the victor stand, she lived a changed life in the present. That's what he's talking about. And he says three things. If I am to live with my mind set completely on the grace that is bearing down upon me, I must be serious about my Christian life. 
That's what the phrase means, gird up the loins of your mind, or gird your mind for action. It means literally to be serious about your Christian life. Now, I know some Christians who haven't had a serious thought about their Christianity since the day they were saved. The people to whom this word was addressed wore long flowing robes, of course, the men. And it was no problem to them to walk about if everything was normal, but in, in an emergency, long flowing robes got in the way. So if you ever saw a guy hitching up his robe, hitching up his belt, or twisting that garment around his legs, you'd know that something serious was happening and something urgent was taking place. When my sister, who was um, who is two years older than I, was a small child, she was helping my mother wash the clothes. Mother was using one of these old gasoline-powered ringer washers. And my sister, who is a small woman now, just a little bitty girl, was standing on this box helping mother wash clothes, putting the clothes through the ringer. She got her hand caught in there. Us Tidwells never were too smart. I mean, she didn't know to get her hand back. She got her hand caught in that ringer, and it went all the way up and lies right up by her shoulder and just started grinding away. As a matter of fact, she almost lost her arm in that accident. Mother's was, mother has a tendency to panic, and she panicked. She couldn't get the thing turned off. She couldn't reverse the ringer. We lived way out in the country. It was a mile and a half to the nearest neighbor. And so she told... Uh, Patsy Joe, my sister, just hang in there. That's all she could do. I'm mean, just kind of hang there. She said, I'm going to get help. And she had a long, she wore a long dress, I am told, and she hitched that dress up and started running. And the neighbors told us about it later. He said, about a quarter of a mile down this road, I saw this woman, and one hand was her dress pulled up about her waist, and the other hand was waving and she was shouting. And as, as, as the neighbor talked about it, everybody kind of had a laugh and a chuckle. Must have been a funny sight. Wasn't funny then. It was a serious matter. It was an urgent matter. They were deadly serious. She was deadly serious as she ran for help. Now what Peter's saying is that we are not to allow our minds to drift aimlessly. It's a picture of a kind of an indifferent nonchalance. But the attitude that we are to have toward the Word of God and the church and the Christian life is one of seriousness. This is serious business. And as I thought about this sermon in light of all that's happened to our church in the last few months and the resignations that have come, we felt all kinds of emotions. We felt frustration and disappointment and discouragement and hopelessness and, and sorrow and tears. But as I contemplated what I was wanting to say today on this kind of uh, unique day is this. It's a call, it's a challenge to get serious about the Christian life. If there ever was a time in the context of our age when we need to begin to take seriously our commitment, it is this time. And Jesus said, A man who hears my words and does nothing about them is a fool. Be serious. Then he says, Secondly, we're to be sober. It means not to be drunk, not to be intoxicated. But he's not just talking about an, an intoxication with wine or strong drink. He's not talking about that completely. That's not what he's referring to, really. 
When he talks about being sober, he's talking about really two things. Now watch this. He's telling us that we need to be mentally alert. That our senses and our reason and our judgment is not to be dulled. For a person can be intoxicated and carried away by all kinds of things. And some of us are. I mean, some of us are just literally intoxicated by every fashion and fad. And we're mesmerized by every whim of the world. And some of us are so addicted to, 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 to another's opinion and acceptance that our judgment and our senses and our reasons are dulled. Don't be intoxicated, he said, Don't be mesmerized by the world. Be mentally alert. It means to wake up. It means to open your eyes. And it has the idea of watching, as Jesus talked about in prayer. Watching. Now, there are several things we need to keep our eyes on. One of them is our prayer life. For I have noticed that my prayer life is a pretty good barometer of my relationship with God. I have noticed that when my relationship with God is kind of bruised, the first thing to go is my prayer life. Or it might be that when my prayer life isn't what it ought to be, my relationship with God suffers. I'm not sure which comes first, but I do know this, that when my prayer life begins to become a burden that's heavy to carry, a responsibility, a duty that I have no joy in, that I can pretty well mark it down, my relationship with God isn't what it ought to be. And he says, don't be conformed to the the standards that you once were conformed unto in your ignorance. Let me say it with the deepest respect. There's some Christians who who are the most ignorant people in the world. I mean, they put a premium on not thinking. For example, we have sat and watched the moral standards of America deteriorate and and erode little by little and not even know it. You don't believe that? You go home tonight, you watch, you turn on the television and you'll hear things on television that 10 years ago would have been unspeakable and unthinkable. Now what has happened? We've been asleep. That's what's happened. I think it's time for some of us to wake up to what's happening around us. That's what he's talking about. We're to be mentally alert. And we're to be morally aloof from the world. Don't become so intoxicated with what the world has that you can't walk a straight line for Jesus. Be serious, be sober. It comes to what are we really about this morning. Be separate. He says, be ye holy. Now, are you listening? Be ye holy because... I am holy. Did you notice that the only only reason God gives for for you to live a holy life is because He is holy? I heard about this philosophy professor that, that came in at the end of the semester to give an exam. And he had one question on the exam. He wrote it on the board. It was one question. In fact, it was one word. The question of the philosophy exam was... Why? That sounds like a question a philosophy professor would ask. And, and there was one correct answer and one person got it. You know what the answer was? This guy said it right over here. He, 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 he mouthed it. Uh, Hazel said it. 
the, the answer to the question was, because. Now God said, I want, I demand of you holiness. And we want to act like little children and ask why. And he said, because. And we ask again, because why? And God says, you be holy because I am holy. That is, you don't get your lifestyle from the world around you. You get your lifestyle from the God you worship. For the character of the God you worship will become your character. In other words, what you're becoming like this morning is the God you worship. Be holy, for I am holy. How do you get people to live a holy life? Do you get people to live a holy life by telling them how terrible sin is? Two guys went out to visit. This is a true story. A man who had not been coming to church, and, and this is what the man said, his reason for not coming to church. He said, well, I just don't like the way that our pastor preaches. And he said, well, what's the problem? He said, well, he never preaches against sin. What he meant was he never names sins with a plural, with an with S. That is, you know, drinking and smoking and gambling and dancing and all. He said, he never, he, he said, how is a person going to, how are we going to get people to live a holy life if the pastor never preaches against sin? Now, I believe that myself. I believe that you are to preach against sin and probably a, pro, a, a part of the problem of our time is that we are not doing that enough. But that's not how you get people to live a holy life. What caused Isaiah to cry, Woe is me, for I'm a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. Well, he saw a vision of the holy God. And what caused Simon Peter to feel the great shame of his denying Jesus? Well, he turned and he saw this holy Lord, the face of this holy God. How do you get people to live a holy life? You introduce them. You give them a vision of a holy God. That's what Augustine meant when he said, Lord, grant me to know which is first, to know thee or to call upon thee. For who can call upon thee without knowing thee? For he that knoweth thee not may call upon thee as thou art not. And what he meant by that? He meant a wrong conception of God means that I'm wrong everywhere. If I have a wrong conception of God, I'm wrong in my prayer life. If I have a wrong conception of God, I'm wrong in my giving. I'm wrong in my Christian life. What is God like? He's holy. That's what he said about himself. And A.W. Tozer in his marvelous book, The Pursuit of God, says it like this. He says, the greatest, conf greatest question confronting the church is God himself. And the most pretentious fact about any man is not what at a given time he may do or say, but what he in his deep heart conceives God to be like. For we all tend, he said, by the secret law of the heart to move to what we to, to move to our mental image of God. Then he said, if we could extract the full answer from a man, what comes to your mind when you think of God, then we could carefully and completely predict that person's spiritual future. 
You know what he was saying? You help a person understand that God, the God he worships, is a holy God, and that man will become holy. How do you get people to fall in love with the Lord? How do you get people to hate the world by telling them how cussed the world is? You can do that and it won't work. I heard this guy tell about his daughter. You know, sometimes I guess daughter, all daughters have mother instincts. And she saw this, she had this, she met this guy, he was an absolute zero. And she had this mother instinct. Somebody needs to love him. I love him. I mean, he was an absolute loser. And she was going to marry this guy and his daughter, this guy's daughter. And, she, and he was just about to die over it. About six months later, she broke off with this guy, this total loser, this zero, and was going with this other fellow, just in love. This is the finest guy. Someone asked the father, said, how did you get that girl away from that loser over to this guy? He said, well, it wasn't by convincing my daughter how terrible he was. If I'd have told her how bad he was, it would have just made her want him that much. Well, I'll just go to, you know, he needs my love and my, my, my support. He said, what I did was I just introduced her to a better boy. I just introduced her to, the, to a better guy. How do you get people to fall out of love with the world? You just introduce them to Jesus. That's how you do it. Now, what is holiness? Now, I want you to hang in here with me. I want to tell you something in just a minute. What is holiness? I know what you think when you hear that word. You think of guys with long beards and funny-looking hats and riding buggies down the highway between here and Ada, you know. And uh, no bathrooms and no, uh, no televisions. That's what you think of when you hear the term holy. Let me tell you what holiness is. It's the everyday business of the Christian life. Holiness is obeying God. It is loving others as, as He loved us. Holiness is obeying God. It's finding some way to love others. Holiness is obeying God. It's, it's finding a way to love the unlovely. It's the main business of the Christian life. Holiness, holiness does not consist in mystic speculations or enthusiastic fervors or uncommanded austerities. Holiness is thinking like God thinks and willing like God wills. Now, how holy am I to be? I'm to be as holy as God is holy. Now you say, well, that's impossible. Yeah, it's one of those impossible possibilities. It's one of those possible impossibilities that always runs through the Bible. Because God just keeps setting out before us these impossible goals and says to us, you're to act as if they were possible. You say, I can't be holy as God is holy. Just don't tell anybody. It might be that it's not so much, I can't be holy as God is holy. It might be more, I won't be holy as God is holy. Now, how wide, how broad is that holiness to reach? What is it to include? Is it to include what I do on Sunday? Uh, yeah, but a lot more than that. He said, you're to be as holy as God. Now, watch this. You're to be as holy as God in every area of your life. 
Now, I want to show you a verse of Scripture. I want you to turn to it. Don't punch your wife and say, uh, you know, look it up while I check my watch. It's the, it's the book of Zechariah. I want you to turn to that. That's the next to the last book in the Old Testament, isn't it? Zechariah, Malachi, it sure is. The book of Zechariah. I want you to turn to chapter 14. And we'll read verse 20 and following. Verse 20 says, chapter 14, verse 20 says, In that day there will be inscribed on the bells of the horses. And he tells us what's going to be inscribed on the bells of the horses. Holy to the Lord. And the cooking pots in the Lord's house will not be like the bowls before the altar. Now watch this. And every cooking pot in Jerusalem and in Judah will be holy to the Lord of hosts. That statement, holy to the Lord, was a statement that was inscribed on the priest garment, on the high priest garment. That was, that's the only place you found it. It was a statement, it was a phrase that the super saint wore when he went into the presence of God. Now, Zechariah saying, there's coming a day when holiness to the Lord will not be something just for the super saint. That day has come. He said, the day is coming when, when the old horse you used to, to plow your fields with, you're going to have inscribed on that old horse, holy to the Lord. And he said, the day is coming when on the pots that you use to cook with in the kitchen are going to have these words inscribed, holy to the Lord. What he's saying is this, that in everything you do, even the tilling of the soil and the cooking of the meal must be holy to God, holy to the Lord. Now folks, if you're doing something, if there's some area of your life on, across which you cannot write holy to the Lord, you better stop doing it. In every area of your life, you are to be as separated, as holy as God is. In your thought life, in your deportment, in your dress, in your, in your language, in your business dealings, in every area of your life, you need to inscribe. You ought to be able to inscribe across the word, across that action, holy to the Lord. It's as holy as God is. It's as holy as God is. It's as pure as God is. Can that be said of you? Can that be said of you? Is there a way in your business dealing? Is there a way in your daily conduct, in the language you use, in the stories you tell, in the words you use? Can it be said of you, that's as holy as God is? Now I got to hurry in this and I'm through. You, ask, you might ask, what guarantees do I have that I'll be holy? This is the guarantee. The scripture says, He has called you to be holy. Now there's several New Testament words for call. There is, there is this word which means it is His effective call. Now sometimes, um, you know, you call your kids, you're not very effective. You know, the kids are out here playing in the yard and you get out and you say, okay kids, dinner's ready. 
about five minutes later, and you, and you look out, and they haven't changed, they haven't budged. You know, you wonder if they heard you. It's not very effective. This is his effective call. Now watch this. In fact, it, it has it in the New American Standard, the right construction. It says, you will be holy because I've called you, and my call is effective. Now my son is in Myrtle Beach, so I can talk about him today. Can't talk about him when he's here. I remember one time when he was a youngster, uh, I was trying to get him to do something. It was kind of hard to get him in that, you know, get him on the track. So we had a little talk. Now, I've noticed, you know, in, 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 in trying to guide you, you know, your kids, you got, everyone is different. Now, Todd, you could whip on him all day, it wouldn't phase him, but he hated, you know, he hated daddy, daddy talks. Well, well, boy, it was a killer for him. So I did a little daddy talk with him. I'm going to get through to him. I said, now, son, you're going to do what I tell you. There's a hard way and there's an easy way. You can do it the hard way. You can do it the easy way. You're going to do what I tell you. No question about it. My mind. Just let it, let it be known that you're going to do what I tell you to. You can do it the hard way. You can do it the easy way. Choice is yours. Now, God's saying, now watch. God's saying, you are going to be holy. You can do it the hard way. You can do it the easy way. If you don't respond to the character of God, he said, then you'll respond to the correction of God. But one way or another, you're going to be holy. I'm going to wear out my hand, my rod of discipline on you, he's saying. If it's necessary, you're going to be holy unto God. Might as well do it the easy way. Because the hard way ain't no fun. <laughs> I can tell you for sure. Now, I want you to anticipate the grace that's bearing down on you. The apostle said, Peter said, it's bearing down on you out of glory. Because Jesus Christ is getting ready to come. Somebody's preached a sermon called Gabriel's Licking His Lips. You know what the idea there is. You know, he's getting ready to blow the trumpet. I mean, uh, the, the, the grace is bearing down on us. Gabriel's licking his lips, getting ready to sound the trumpet. Therefore, get serious, get sober, get separate. Let's pray together. Father, we bow in your presence right now to acknowledge that you are our God, sovereign, holy God. Thrice holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. Give us this morning, Father, a vision of your holiness so that we can see the pattern of our holiness. And God, I pray that if there are those this morning who need to step down an aisle to say, I'm willing to do it the easy way the way of submission, the way of surrender. If there are those who would do that, God, that you'll draw them now, because I pray in Jesus' name. Now we have three invitations. The first invitation is for you to give your heart and life to Jesus Christ. Are you a citizen of heaven? Have you, have you, have you, is your name in the book? Have you been saved? Are you part of the kingdom? Are you on your way to heaven? If life were snuffed out from you today, would you wake up in heaven? 
The invitation is for you to come this morning to receive the gift of eternal life that Jesus Christ purchased for you at Calvary and offers to you as a free gift in response to your faith. Would you trust Jesus only? I was talking to a young man this week, a little bit concerned about his salvation. I said, well, the way to be saved for any of us is just to trust Jesus only and just say, Lord Jesus, if I go to hell, it's going to be your fault. I'm putting everything on you. That's the way, you, that's the way you're saved. There might be someone who needs to come this morning to say, I've not been serious about my Christian walk. I've been asleep. I'm not a separate individual. I'm just conformed just like the world. You can't identify me from anybody else who's an unbeliever. I want to be separate and holy unto God. Or you may need to join the church. If there's any other way that God has for winning the world than the church, He'd give us, the Holy Spirit would tell us. Come on, let's, let's do it today while we stand and sing. Come. just a second, but let me make one last appeal, perhaps to kind of clarify these decisions we're asking to you to make publicly. The first is to come publicly declaring your faith in Christ. Maybe in Bible school or at Falls Creek or wherever. You just secretly in your heart received Christ. You invited Him to be your Savior. Now He wants you to step out publicly confessing Him before men. That means coming forward and allowing us to know of your stand for Christ. The second invitation is for rededication of your life, to walk in holiness unto the Lord, to inscribe across your life the words, holy unto God. The third invitation is for you to come and join the church. Be with us. We need you. Let's do it together. Let's win this world, our community, this place together. Now, if God is leading you to these kinds of decisions, it's, you must do it right now while we sing our theme one time. Come on.